would like to acknowledge that the Teach Reach podcast is operating on the unceded traditional territories of the Matsky, Kwantlen, Katsi, and Semihamu First Nations. Growing up on ancestral territory of the Taino people, and now as an uninvited guest on Turtle Island, I recognize the immense impact that the land has had on me. The land has taught me respect, reciprocity, reverence, humility, and responsibility. Through indigenous knowledges, I learned that the land carries stories, histories, medicine, and gifts that enable us to reflect and connect with ourselves and our communities. As a stories-focused podcast, I understand the value of investigating place and space to grapple with real-world issues. I seek to support the ways that indigenous peoples are using to protect their land and communities. It is my intention to continue learning how to properly honor and care for the place where I live. Welcome to Teach Reach Podcast, a podcast to explore human connection through shared stories. Stories are what we store in the vault of our heart. Through them, we are exposed to a variety of voices to understand the narratives that shape our communities. We are all stories, those we know, those we live through, those we fabricate, and those we wish to deconstruct. However, we are not always at the center of those stories. We teach, you reach. Before I introduce the next guest, I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you who have either liked, subscribed, rated our podcast on Google, Apple, Spotify. If you have shared our podcast on your socials on Instagram or Facebook or through private channels like your text messages and your WhatsApp, I'm really, 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 really appreciative of you spreading the word. The currency for podcasting is the reviews and the rates and the likes and the downloads. That's that's the only thing that fuels podcast. So I'm really, really appreciative. And I'm asking you, if you have not shared the podcast yet, please do so. If you haven't rated our podcast, please do so. And I know in the middle of things, it's hard for us to remember, oh, I had to review that podcast. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you five seconds right now. Stop that recording here and share the podcast. Stop that recording here and like the podcast. Stop that recording here and rate and write a review. Here we go. So hope you have liked it. Hope you have reviewed the podcast. And maybe we can do a little association with you. Tonight, before you brush your teeth, remember, (laughs) read the podcast and write us a review. All right? It is so cool to have David back with us for a second episode. The first time that we had David was during season two. It was an episode called Healing. I highly recommend that people have a listen to understand David's work as an anti-racist psychotherapist. During the episode on healing, we had talked about his fictional Afrofuturistic book called 
Black Mountain Fight for the Future. And this current episode right now, David is coming back to talk to us about Black Mountain Fight for the Future. And Black Mountain is an Afrofuturistic anime-inspired science fiction novel that transports the readers into a future where a powerful ruler threatens the very fabric of existence. In a world on the brink of destruction, threatened by artificial intelligence, climate change, and corporate greed, only one group of fighters can rise up and lead the revolution. So throughout the book, we are following the fighters navigating dangerous missions and owning the powers bestowed upon them through initiation ceremonies as they fight for the liberation of all oppressed people around the world. An amazing book. Enjoy the right people. Share the podcast. Kembela Palage. I'm, uh, so I'm trying to, you know, last time that I record with you, my producer got after me because I had forgotten to set up my mic properly. So, oh, really? So I was set up on a on a wrong on the wrong mic. So, you know, I got uh, I didn't get in trouble, but you know, he was like, he's a audio fanatic, so he was like, dude, your audio is not. Uh, we hear David loud and clear, but yourself, you're oh, far. No. So, so today I am I since I'm the producer as well on the show today, I I am triple checking. <laughs> I'm triple I'm triple checking everything but whatever. Anyways, um I'm I'm so happy man. Like happy to see you. How have you been? Yeah, I'm happy to see you too. We had a great conversation uh last time. Uh me I've I've been pretty pretty well. When was our last conversation? Was it before my son was born? I think No, I think no, no. Your son your son was I don't know how old but it was in January end of January beginning of February okay. that we had a conversation. So I think so um, yeah. I think your son was a new uh, newborn. Um, yeah. And how how old is he now? Well, now he's a he's a year and a month old, and uh, we went for our first walk. So it's like he put on <laughs> like, these little sneakers. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Oh and, man, yeah, we put on these little sneakers, and he uh, led the way. And he as he was walking down the driveway, and then. It's like, I guess he sees like his parents with their cell phone all the time. So mm. he has this green plastic phone that is fake. <laughs> like it's just a plastic phone. And it's like, now he's bringing it with him everywhere where he's going. It makes me reflect on what is it that I'm doing? I'm, I'm programming him to love the cell phone so early. <laughs> he's trying to avoid like any contact with screens and all that stuff. And now he, he, he sees us talking on it. So he's bringing this plastic thing to my ear. And so I have to right. be like, hello, right. hello. Oh, it's for you. And then I give him the phone and he just That's does right. it again. Cause he, he has no English. He has no words. So he's just <laughs> like, I guess you're the one who's going to talk on the phone. So yeah. So, so it's, it's fun. So yeah, we, uh, we tried to have a walk. We, uh, but- we went past one neighbor and then he turned around in a circle and we went into the backyard and it was fascinating because these are things that we all take for granted and Mm. uh, for him he has to be so intentional about each step and intentional about holding his plastic phone also and uh it's it's a joy so i I do want to say 
any updates for that is really he's continuing to give me more meditations helping me to learn a bit more about myself each time right and right right teaching me to put down my cell phone once in a while so, <laughs> well it's interesting because um you know something that i've noticed the new generation that grows up around people around them using cell phone is that the mm -hmm. gesture of their hands you know back when in the days when you and i were growing up we would put the phone as our thumb and our like small yes. finger by our ear yeah and now now right now they have a palm like they just oh, stuck wow. a palm like they just stuck a palm beside their face because that's that's how you talk on the phone wow. us we used to have like this kind of yeah like, a aloha yeah. symbol kind of thing and and now we they have the palm so it's interesting that even regardless of how we socialize our kids to not use cell phone or whatever our take is on, you know, device and screens, they find yes. a way to like replicate, right? Replicate yes. that. So that's, that's interesting. It's, you it's know? beautiful. So now I know I need to, to, I need to stay hip. I need to stay relevant. So I can't do this anymore. Because um, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to, it's, it's just so funny. I remember when we were young, it's like, we'd usually get, like a little frustrated with our parents or if they didn't understand things so easily or mm -hmm. be like, how come people, they don't just get it. Or like we'd have our own slang. And now I'm in that position where I'm like, you know, I'm <laughs> trying to catch up with you guys, man. Like, I, I thought I was cool before and apparently not. So now, bro, um, but this is the cycle and uh, I'm enjoying every bit of it. So I'm amazing, man. Congratulations to your son Thank for you. taking, for taking the first few steps. I mean, it it is a congratulations to him and for yes. you is to it's to brace yourself because it, that's it it's it's like there's no limit now like it's just like that's, he took his first step and then and then well then you might as well follow because there's no way you can <laughs> yes. you can hold so, <laughs> yes and um, that's what people have been telling me is they're like okay well it's good that you're enjoying his first steps until he begins to run and I'm like oh no he's gonna run mm -hmm. like it's interesting. Uh, there's uh, a human that doesn't have a full frontal lobe or an understanding of central executive processing who's going to then make decisions about running. So mm -hmm. I think um, I'll have to brace myself. We've we've tried to baby-proof the home, but I'll need to <laughs> I'll have to baby-proof the front of my house. I, I, <laughs> um, but again, is that, this is what I mean about the meditations. He's always given me something to think about. Always, there's always something new. Yeah, you 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 know you think baby proofing would be good if it was done by the by a baby. Yeah. If it's done by an adult, your perspective of baby proofing, you think it's baby proof. Yeah, and it's not. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's it's like um, I'm like okay, because you have to put yourself into the shoes of a child, or like uh, and you have to be like okay, like electrical. Uh, what's it called? The power outlets. Power outlets, we mm. put some things over them to make sure he doesn't put a finger inside. And we have to, you know, like put some things on <clears throat> on the uh, cupboards to make sure he doesn't open them. And then I'm like, oh, wait, but he's going to the washing clean, uh, washing machine. Oh, I didn't think of yeah. that. Oh, the dishwasher, he's going to that. <laughs> you know, it's like, he's always like two steps ahead of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't think that he would want to go inside of these things. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so I mean, this is the interesting thing is 
I, he does it, and sometimes he's smiling at me. He's smiling at me while he's hitting the wall, and he's like looking at me. He's like, right, "I can right, get right, in trouble right. for this. I know this is the wrong thing to do, but what are you going to do?" <laughs> you know, and it's it's fun. It's really fun, man. So I've just I've just been um, I earlier earlier I remember times where I'd be frustrated, and mm. I think it's natural to be frustrated when there's someone who's, whose only way of communicating is yelling at the top of their lungs. So it makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, when before I was a parent, I didn't understand why parents were saying they're so stressed. Now I understand. I completely understand. But right. um, after a while, I had to realize, wait, this is his way of communicating. And uh, it's that my job is also to protect him and to teach him. And when I changed the perspective, instead of trying to control what was going on or feeling as if uh, I failed or I didn't do enough or he's successful because Mm -hmm. he does something different. Um, I've changed it to me trying to kind of learn with him. And I was actually in a conversation with my mother about this as well, because she works in, uh, in education. And we were talking about how, I don't know if you've seen in Quebec, but it was maybe last year, a few, uh, sorry, a, a few weeks ago, there was a shortage of about 8,000 teachers before the beginning of the new year. Now I think they're still down by about 1,000. And it made me think about how this is a profession that's so important and so valuable. It's what determines how the next generation is going to be. And people, like, I, I feel that for a field that's so important for our society, it's almost a tragedy to hear that we don't know where our teachers are going to be. And um, because she has been teaching for many years, it was interesting where she would see younger teachers come in after her and then they would burn out before her. Mm. And I was speaking to her as well as that as a therapist, I would see some therapists that would have some strong, some difficulties with certain types of clients were in some situations, I wouldn't have the same difficulties. And we started to think about how it's not just about the profession, it's about the purpose. So when the teacher is in the classroom and they are thinking about controlling the outcome, or they're thinking about maintaining a hierarchy of who's the teacher and who's the student, I think it's a one-way path to burnout. And in the same way with therapy as well, is if the therapist is thinking that they alone are the person who can bring knowledge, then they will end up working harder than the client. So I think it's not just about skill set. It's not just about the professions that we're in. We need to think about what's the purpose behind it. And so while I do think that it's it's uh, that we need to improve um, the 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 skill set of teachers, of therapists, all pro- uh, professions across the board. We also need to compensate them properly. We also need to make it so that they're properly supported by their supervisors, paid adequately. Like every year, we hear that student uh, that teachers will protest because they're not paid enough. And what is what does that say about our society that we are not paying the people who will help to make the next generation uh, flourish? So right, right. Um, again, there's multiple. I don't remember what your initial question was, oh, but brother. it's just we're going to go off, as you know, as you know, we're going to go off to all the different tangents, all the branches of the tree, 
and uh, in some way, shape, or form, it always connects in the end. Yes. You know, I love the fact that you said tangents and then you reframe it to branches of the tree. Because tangents sometimes imply that we are out of the topic. We are not Mm -hmm. in the same realm. Branches of the tree, we are still connected to the same thing. And at the bottom of it... At the bottom of it is is human connections, is is seeing the people. Myself as a teacher, I'm gearing up right now to go back into the classroom, a place yes. that I dearly that I dearly miss. Um, for the last two months, I mean, for the last three weeks, I've been aching to to share space with kids, to share space with with young minds, to to mm-hmm. learn new expressions because I feel like I'm out of date when I go on the internet. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> Join the club. And, uh, Join the club. <laughs> and the thing is, we do not value exactly that. We do not value preparing the generation that's coming. Mm. And then I don't want to pick on doctors but we are such a reactive society that we are paying the people that are at the end of the line to take care of the sick way like higher than people that are at the front of the line preparing the people to get, oh, interesting. To get there. And and it's it's frustrating because you 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 see that people when whenever I go to a party and people start talking about teachers, you know, you have the the top list of like, oh, you guys have two months of vacations. You have your weekends. Life is great. And you're like, if you measure my job by the vacations that I have, then you are not looking at my job properly. Mm. Right? My job is not predicated by the vacations that I have. My job is predicated by the intention that I bring up to my classroom. And when sure. you mentioned that, when you mentioned that the, the, the fight for the hierarchy, I have a rule in my classrooms is that the person that's speaking is the person that's learning. So if I'm the only one speaking and the students are quiet, then I'm learning a heck of a lot more than themselves. So my my class has to be loud. They have to talk a lot. They have to express themselves because they are the one they are doing the learning, me with them, but I need to listen to them instead of just like, you stay quiet, I have the knowledge mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. going to be a top-down approach, right? So every single year, I've been doing this for 12 years, every single year I finished, I finished teaching, I realized how those kids, those people that were in my classroom, taught me way more than I taught them (laughs) yes right and then how both of us we grew to to a new level and then hopefully i I pass it to another teacher because they're going to another year or they're going to university or whatnot but i think that that's the reflection that is not happening and as a society the way that we because the measure of value in this capitalistic society is measured by money what we value is what we pay more for. And, and it's very mm. clearly, vis- clearly visible that teachers are not valued. And in and, and sp- and Quebec, it's not a, I don't, I, I'll get in there because it's you and, and I love sharing those things with you. But, you know, it's the shortage of teachers is true, but there's a question to be asked 
in the Quebec equation about is it not fabricated by a bunch of teachers that are qualified but cannot teach because of the religious background? Uh. It begged the question. It's true that there's a shortage, but if we are going to answer that question, we have to ask all the questions of like, where does it come from? Is it because we don't train teachers, we don't pay them enough? Like all the questions are valid, but we need to ask that question as well. Like policy-wise speaking, why? <laughs> why do some teachers that are qualified and sitting at home or cannot be in that sphere? Sure. Right. So, sure. 100%. Oh. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I do think that some of these shortages that we do hear about are oftentimes due to policy decisions that there are some people who do want to be teachers or for example there are some people who are um, taxi cab drivers but in their previous country they were mechanical engineers or they were educators or they had phds i've met some people who had phds and then they came to this country and the phd is not uh, recognized and what does that mean when we are going to say that your knowledge outside of this imaginary border, because if anyone has crossed the border recently, you know, I've checked, there's no line. <laughs> there's no line when you cross uh, Canada to the States. And if you fly, there's no imaginary border. Like these things are all fabricated. And I think it leads to the idea that to some degree, some of the difficulties we encounter are socially constructed. Some of the, the uh, like some people who can't get a job, it's not because they don't want a job. It's that, and it's, it's not because they're underqualified. Sometimes it, to some degree they're overqualified as well, or they just don't want that type of quality, which can be the color of the skin, which can be the gender, which can be the religion, if we're going to talk about that. But in my case also, it can be the language. And right. I do think that, uh, Anglophones have a unique uh, situation in Quebec. Uh, some of my clients that are English, when I talk about their trauma histories, they will speak about uh, the difficulty that they've had of adapting to a province that will believe that there's only one language that is right. uh, seen as uh, as an authority or one language that is seen as, as significant. And it's to the point where it's in the law. So it's like the types of stresses that my clients are going to bring to me, oftentimes the society is going to say, uh, it's like the society will normalize it. So then the client believes that they themselves are deficient or that they are crazy. Um, mm. I had a client speaking the other day about how they've experienced uh, microaggressions despite their educational level, despite the fact that they're raised here, but because of their black skin, they would be getting the questions of like, are you really like uh, who you say you are? Like, are you really a, uh, a scientist? Are you really a lawyer? Are you really a teacher? Uh, can I touch your hair? All of these foolishness things. You would think that to some degree, if our PhDs outside of the country are not uh, seen as competent, why is it that the PhDs in the country are still experiencing microaggressions? Right, it's very, right. it's very interesting. So, so all of that to say is that um, I do think that to some degree, uh, there's always, of course, multiple variables whenever we're talking about job shortages and things like that. Mm, mm. But some of the lack, especially when we say the lack of black teachers, the lack of uh, black therapists, 
some of these are actually uh, based on policy decisions and they can actually change like that. That's what I believe. Right. Is right. that if we, right. if we have, um, I think the greatest example for me is um, uh, climate change. I think climate change is a good uh, discussion. And I think many of the young people that you work with, they probably have these types of concerns. I know that many of the young clients that I have, uh, they talk about this as well. Some of them speak about it in terms of like a hopelessness, a feeling like their future is being taken from them because there are people who value profits over people. Mm-hmm. But I remember, if you remember with uh, COVID, when uh, there was that time they said, yo, everyone stay home, no one's going out. And then after the waters, you started to see dolphins <laughs> jumping out of the way. You know what I mean? It's like the water is becoming clearer now. Like, what? There's an elephant. What is an elephant doing here? <laughs> like, there are all these sightings, like animals. They're like, why are there these animals? They've never been here before and all this stuff. And uh, and then it's just, they took like maybe a month of us returning back to fly in our jet fuel engines and stuff. And then now there, there's no coral reef and all this stuff. So it's like, for me, I really believe that if we identify what the problem is, that people are able to, to solve it. I really mm-hmm. believe that. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I think... Um, when you're talking about you as a teacher, the idea that you have, or the, the, I feel it's even like a deep rooted belief of the person who is speaking is the one who is learning. I think that those types of beliefs create better teaching environments. I think that our social environment of profit over people is what creates the lack of teachers that are there, the pollution in the environment and also, to some degree, uh, the mental health conditions that we see among our young people and the older people as well. Mm. Yo, um, <laughs> we are we are twenty minutes into our talk. Yeah, man. And <laughs> and, and I even I, I haven't even mentioned your name. So, yeah, that's but, true. Oh, yeah, but, that's true. But but, but the, the thing is, the thing is, it, it's a it's a beauty of like it's a beauty of like entering that space with you and talking about our current current climate atmosphere in general and having like being able to tap into that we mm-hmm. we uh, i haven't felt any dogmatic views in there i felt a genuine sense of asking the question probing the question yes. and that's what i feel that conversations should happen in good faith where mm-hmm. everyone is entering that plane of conversation in good faith. And one of my questions that I have with people that I don't agree with often with their views is about how serious are you about this conversation? It's not only about having deep conversation. It's also about ha- having, having a level of seriousness behind the conversation so Tomorrow when I get in my classroom, I am going to think about what you just said of like, am I myself, despite thinking that I'm doing the best that I can, are there certain things that I don't see that I could bring to my classroom and that I could that make that impact myself, right? Like one individual. That doesn't mean that it's going to change overnight, but it's the level of seriousness that we need to have when we are entering deep conversations and deep spaces. That's I awesome. feel that of, oftentimes we enter those spaces by, you know, we're just going to say something to stir the pot 
Yes. And then after that, we're just gonna leave and then just like put the matches in the in the bucket of like gasoline and then just like fire things up. And then after that, we go back to our regular life and we're like, oh yeah, we had a conversation and and we just like stirred apart. Where if we are there's a level of seriousness that we need to have to to approach things. Which yes. which which leads me to, you know, talking about the future. Because mm. y- you are um, the second guest that's coming back on the podcast, Teach Reach. And um, you recently published a book that you mentioned the first time that we met. Yes. Black, Mount- Black Mountain Fight for the Future. Here it is, Black Mountain <laughs> Fight for the Future. This is Brother, it. This is the hardcover version. Hardcover. Congr- so you managed to give birth two years in a row. Yes. You know? You know, your son turned one and a one and a bit, and then you have another baby right away, right? Well, this is my fourth book, though. So I've been giving right. birth since 2020. <laughs> I've been constantly <laughs> birthing, that, birthing that, out new ideas. That's that's the real pandemic. You're giving birth every year. You're gonna have to put a ceiling in that, brother. But <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, what's it called? What did they used to, they used to say? Flatten the curve. I think that. Yeah. Uh, this is this is gonna be exponential. I feel when you before you write your first book, it's like you think it's impossible to write a book, or you'll be like, no, there's no way I can do it, or who am I to write a book? And since mm. I'm showing covers of books, then I can say that. Then I made this book, and this is anti-racist right. psychotherapy. And it's like after writing anti-racist psychotherapy, I was like, oh wait, I wrote a book. Oh, I guess I'm an author now. I, maybe right. I can write another book. And so then after I wrote the second one which is black meditation and then black meditation. I wrote it because there were very few, I was completely booked as a therapist and there were a few people I could refer clients to um, Mm. who would be able to talk about anti-racism or even talk about being a black person. So that's why I wrote something so that I could reach people outside of my own reach. And then there were people, if you remember, there was the, um, there was a mass shooting, I believe in Buffalo, New York, which was racially targeted. Uh, they targeted black people specifically. And, you know, there was also a recent mass shooting that was in J- uh, Jacksonville in uh, mm. Florida as well. And just knowing that race itself, to some degree, makes it so that we become targets for certain types of uh, violence from the scale of microaggressions to the scale of lynchings, et cetera. So then um, I was called to make a, a form of psychotherapy to treat the survivors and the victims of, of these mm. things, as well as to help the therapists who were helping. And so then I developed racial trauma recovery and then developed the approach that is called rhythm and processing, which is the clinical framework uh, that underlies how to treat mental health uh, issues relating to racial trauma, as well as complex racial trauma. And then just as we just said, this big old book right here, uh, this is actually the thickest book that I've written. It's a novel, which is a science fiction novel that's designed to get people, young people especially, just interested in some of the topics we've been discussing so far in the podcast, as well as the importance of trauma processing so that when we are able to heal from our trauma, we are able to become the person of our dreams. We can become right. the person that we need to be in order to change uh, the world and to fight the global oppressor that is threatening all the planets in the future. So that is uh, 
Right, <laughs> right. So that's so, David Archer. Yes, it, just in case, I am David Archer. I don't, I don't think I said my name yet. We're, we're thirty minutes in. Yes, I am David oh, Archer, brother. and I hail from Montreal, Canada. But the original name of this land is Jogge, which is the name of a uh, Haudenosaunee people gave it. So we got to recognize them too. That's uh, right. That's me. This is me. Right. So, so <laughs> w- welcome, welcome. It's it's um. I use I say that in several podcast interviews that I have, especially when I interview black folks, we have a way to converse that is just unique, right? It, it's a way to enter conversations mm-hmm. where, where, well, you know, the beginning will be at the middle, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't matter. We'll just we'll just get in there and then just just get to things. Um, yeah. It, it, and and that's the power of, I find that it's a way of storytelling that we have mm-hmm. where you kind of like have to pay attention and then you just, you know, you come back with the details and then you tease it out. So I feel that in your practice and the four, four book that you mentioned in there, there's a transition from the clinical, I would say textbook approach of being a, a, a black um, anti, anti, um, anti-psycho anti-black psychotherapist sorry um th- there's a shift. anti-racist 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 psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. there's too many anti-black psychotherapists <laughs> i think i think the anti-black psychotherapist is a problem right because, right 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 <laughs> anti-racist psychotherapist yes, yes 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 so so there is a shift that happened in there and then you kind of like go into the novel and the storytelling what is the role of storytelling in fighting um, racism, right? What, yeah, so what do you think? I, yeah. I want to comment on that is that the idea of time being a linear thing is actually more of a Eurocentric perspective on time. And mm. I talk about it in, um, I believe I say it in anti racist psychotherapy, because in that book I was trying to develop uh, an Afrocentric inspired form of doing our work. And the Afrocentric perspective on time is that time is cyclical. So that's why I'll say it in this different way is I think when we come from a European and Western based mindset is we are sometimes ruled by our calendars and knowing that there's something that begins and something that ends and then another thing starts and then another thing ends. And um, it's, it's just when we talk about black people time, is that black people time <laughs> is not really this linear thing. And I remember thinking at first, I was like, why do they say that it's black people time? And like, are they trying to disrespect us? And they're trying to say that it's a bad thing. And then, then I realized that when I worked in uh, Ganawaga, I worked in an indigenous community. And then they had Indian time. They had Indian people time. Mm. And I was like, oh, you guys have the same thing. And you guys are showing mm. up the same time. And you guys are kind of seeming like me. There's some clients that I had that would speak in a way, even though they're not speaking, they're not from Jamaica or anything like that. It's like their energy was like my cousins. I was like, yo, this guy seems mm. like he's one of my family, family members. And then I went to uh, Lebanon and in Lebanon, they had their own time too. Right. <laughs> they were not right. following that Eurocentric thing. <laughs> so, um, so that's why I think uh, time really is a subjective thing. And I think it shows the creativity of all people when we are able to, to stretch and bend time and to, and to play with it. As a therapist, uh, I often see 
the work that I am doing always relates to time because I'm talking about trauma. So I'm talking to a person about something that happened to them in the past. Mm-hmm. When it is unresolved, they will often return to it in different ways in their present. I'll give an example. When people have been, um, if we speak about um, if there's a child who's in a household and the, the, there's a domestic violence that happens in the relationship between their parents, when it is a young boy, oftentimes them witnessing this violence increases the chance that they may seek out a relationship where they reenact the violence that they saw in their upbringing. And if it's a girl, sometimes in, in some cases, they may also reenact the violence that they saw their parents go through by choosing a partner who may cause violence to them. This is not to victim blame, but it's to say that sometimes the, ex- the difficult experiences we see that cause intense suffering to us, they come back to us in the present. So this is not something that is that can be seen as linear. This is something that we don't know exactly when it started, but it seems to happen time and time again when I meet with my clients, that there's this cyclical, almost this, um, um, I want to say karmic, like I'm just saying that there's something in that kind of sets in, in motion certain types of things. Mm-hmm. But it's a little different from karma because I believe that when a person heals from this suffering, then they're able to actually be generational. Um, I guess we could say uh, they could break these generational cycles that do take place. But mm-hmm. oftentimes when I do see um, clients that have present day suffering, when I look at what happened with their parents, when I look at what happened with their grandparents, we oftentimes see that time cannot be seen as linear if these people are reenacting the same process. Mm-hmm. Um, did that answer your question? I feel again that, that, that going through no, all the branches that, and the roots that, and the whole tree. That answered that answered the question. The the branches and the tree, it's a it's a metaphor that I love a lot. This this yeah. summer, this summer I had the chance to to see for the very first time in front of me a banyan tree. Right? And banyan and, tree. A banyan tree, it's a it's a big ass tree that has roots. So when the branches grow, once they touch the ground, they grow as another tree, but they're still part of the same tree. And it can cover miles. <laughs> it can cover like a big area. That's beautiful. And I had a chance, I had a chance to see the first banyan tree. And then you're looking at one part that you seem, it seems like it's a tree, but it's a branch from the mother tree. Wow. And then it's like, it's like all connected, right? And it wasn't even the biggest banyan tree in the world. The biggest banyan tree in the world is somewhere in India and it covers acres upon acres upon acres. And you're like, how, how is that possible? So, which means that every time that there's a fertile place for the, for the branch to land, it will just Mm -hmm. grow and it needs to be trimmed around. So those branches that, 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 that we are, everything is connected, right? Like everything is connected and it goes to the cyclical nature that you were talking about. There's yeah. no clear boundary. And you can even see that in our, in some part of the Western world where, you know, you have very Cartesian way of building cities where yes. it's like, you know, it's parallel and perpendicular and yes. that there's a, there's a stop right there. So it's very s- square. And 
mind you, I, I think it does have its purpose some, sometimes, but I do, it, it's a reflection of how we think as well. Now, the, the, the part of like breaking the cycle and, and, and regenerating something new, it's, there's a liberating nature in it. Yes. And, and in the synopsis of your book, it talks about, you know, the, the people fight for the liberation of all oppressed people around oh, the yes, world. Oh, yes, yes. How does one fight for liberation? How do we do that? So I believe it may have been Steve Biko who spoke about that we, the first step is that psychological liberation. And I really believe that as well is that you, like, even if we think about um, martial arts, which I'm not a martial arts, I'm not a martial arts uh, practitioner. Mm -hmm. uh, I have practiced meditation. <laughs> I've done some yoga, but I have the flexibility of a rock, of a stone, maybe, of a banyan tree. No, not, a, not even a banyan tree. Um, but I, I'm a big fan of Japanese anime, and uh, or I used mm. to be, because now it's like I feel some of the anime is just, it's not it's not made for people like me because I have a critical anti-racist psychotherapy perspective. And so mm -hmm. if I see that all the black characters are not like acting right or there's problems with them, um, you know, stock Dragon Ball Z, Mr. Popo, looking, <laughs> looking in your direction. Um, when I see these types of things, I kind of feel like, wait, uh, this is not created for me. So part of the reason why I created this type of book is because I realized that when I was younger, the only time that I would be reading is when I was assigned a reading in school. So reading was equated with work. It wasn't always equated with pleasure. And when I was younger, I used to, um, my oldest brother, he was, he was always taller than me. He played, in, he played basketball, so he was always super mm. tall. He used to have these Spider-Man comics. And he put them on the tallest possible shelf so I couldn't reach them. And, you know, when I was young, I was like, why is he doing this? Why doesn't he want me to read it? And now that I have a child, I'm like, oh, maybe he thought I'd eat the book because my son, <laughs> my son is he's following after his father. He's devouring literature, literally. <laughs> and so um, when I was younger then, because I didn't have access to these comics, I drew my own. And so I, have, I still have like bunches of comics that I drew and drew the comic like in the style of Dragon Ball Z, but making my own types of characters, their own types of abilities and all of these things. Uh, in the book, I felt that I wanted to make not just another story that would be like stereotypical understandings of how darker skinned people can be, but I wanted to make something that would challenge a narrative and also something that would make it so that the younger version of myself would feel happy reading. So the way how they fight is by first acknowledging that there is a problem and then acknowledging how does the problem exist within themselves, healing from that suffering that exists, and then refining their skills along the way. But when we are able to heal from the pain and suffering that we've gained from our previous battles, whether we went into the boxing ring or not intentionally, whether we, whether we, uh, we signed up for these battles or these fights or, or whether they're random or not. When we then heal from ourselves, uh, heal from our suffering and then consciously choose to fight for something that is right, then there's an extra step. And I think it is 
healing from the losses so that we can not replicate them in the future. And that's a lot of what the book is about is how do you heal from the suffering that has come about because people have said that your dark skin means that it warrants violence against you? And how do you become a better person while still being able to love uh, your skin, loving who you are and loving your people? And even in the book, they're reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Even in the book, they're reading, I see the shirt that you got, they're reading The Fire Next Time. Yes. Okay. Yes. They're yes. they're reading these things, and again, this is just the, the the banyan roots are just connecting. Okay, so, but this is what it is: is that I think in order for you to be grounded in the present, you need to know where you came from. You need to be able to feel good about your present situation, or actually determine uh, your purpose, and then after you can have different outcomes in the future. So that's the general understanding of how I believe it works. Nice, nice. How, you know, the, the book is under the genre science fiction. Yes. How, how crazy it is to think that this message of like having people healing from their trauma having people to, you know, liberate themselves. How crazy it is for you as the author, how crazy it is to, to see this as science fiction. Like how, I yes. mean, for me, I'm like, I'm like, why can't it be that? Why can't it be real? Why can't it be not? Why, why science fiction? I mean, it's not. Yes. <laughs> just, it could why, be. Why, why fantasy? I'm not, it's not, it's not a critique. It's, it's just like, it's a, it's a critique. It's a social critique that I'm putting on the fact that the message, a, a powerful and positive message as such, where we are offering and inviting people to know where they came from, to embrace their purpose, yes. to liberate themselves and to be who they are, their core wants to be. Yes. That we live in a place that this simple message is labeled science fiction. <laughs> well, um, let me just, let, let me just uh, make sure that this is clear though, is that the first right. three books are, are nonfiction. Right. And right. 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 Strangely, right. strangely enough, this fourth book is the fourth in the canon because this fourth book still <laughs> refers to all of the other ones. It refers to right. all of the other right. ones. But right. I felt, I felt I needed to create, science fiction because mm. i feel that even as black people we feel that we don't that this is not what we do mm. it's it's a very strange thing is that um um when i was younger uh, i actually was interested in comics and japanese anime and all mm. this mm. Mm. and i felt that people would say that this is not what black people do and which was very strange mm -hmm. because we've been telling stories <laughs> You know, the, the Egyptians invented the papyrus. They invented right. the be able to be able to tell stories. And you're gonna tell me that you got people with the head of a of a dog and the you know, like in the hieroglyphs <laughs> and all that stuff. You're gonna tell me that we weren't using our creativity back then. And right. I feel um that oftentimes what has happened is when we, a person becomes sufficiently traumatized, they lose access to creativity. So they I'll give you an example. I was talking to a client who um, was sufficiently traumatized or traumatized a lot. Then they came to this country and they thought it would be a little better. 
but unfortunately they had to contend with racism in the country they were in before they were they weren't seen as a minority so they were surprised that they were confronted by people who wanted to help them in immigration who would still be uh, being racist towards them. And they are surprised by the difficulties of their skin causing these things. Mm-hmm. What we did recently is we were able to help her to heal from some of the suffering that she experienced. The reason why I bring her up is because she told me just a few days ago that before we met, when she had she lost the ability to visualize Meaning that because the trauma was so intense, whenever she'd close her eyes, she would see the trauma. Mm-hmm. And so she, I guess then on some unconscious level, she prevented herself from visualizing anything because thinking of the past would be too difficult, but it also prevented her from thinking about the future as well. So it would only be black all the time. While we practice some of the resources and the techniques that I explained in the previous books, we were able to create what is called overturning information in her understanding of her memories and in her understanding of the present, meaning that there were some disconfirming events. So she would think about stressful things and then feel like the blessing of God within her. Okay, right, uh, right. She would think about stressful events and then um, be able to feel light as a feather. So these are things that are real okay they're completely real but it almost sounds like science fiction when i'm explaining it to you so recently what happened is she told me that um now she no longer sees that black thing that blocks her from accessing she's starting to see uh images of light that are creeping in so now she's able to see a path towards her future and again is that um i do have to say this is that she felt as if she lost her voice and now she feels as if she's able to sing and she brought, uh, you know, she brought tears to the to the eyes of the people who heard it because they never knew that she could really speak in this way or that she could really wow. sing. And so I say all of this um, just to explain that as a therapist, I feel I need to go into the realms of science fiction because what I'm seeing on my regular day to day, it kind of challenges what we really exper- what we really think. Right. Uh, there are people who meet me f- for who have treatment resistant diagnoses meaning that previous attempts at therapy were not working. So they would have like a, what would be called like a a treatment resistant diagnosis of depression. So then when they meet me and then we're visualizing like, um, uh, or not even visualizing in the sessions, I'll show them videos of like mountains or like videos of like goats or animals and they're feeling awesome. And then the body is starting to generalize. If I feel awesome in this present moment, when I access this past event, I can also feel awesome. Therefore, I'm safe in this moment. Therefore, in the past, I overcame it as well. Mm -hmm. They then get over their depression by being able to use this thing that's called memory reconsolidation. And when they are no longer depressed, even though they came in with a depressed, uh, a treatment-resistant form of depression, is that not also... Uh, science fiction. <laughs> right. I mean, right, right. It's pretty real. Right. It's pretty real to me, but I'm just letting right, you know right. the ways how we do this, these changes in the 21st century um, yeah, yeah. and with the most up-to-date forms, they, they kind of challenge all previous conceptions and ideas about how healing actually happens. Mm-hmm. And the way how it does it too is by doing it in the most natural way, in a way that makes it so that I, as a therapist, 
am not in the position of therapist, that I place them in the role of determining what is it that makes you smile? What is it that makes you feel good about yourself? So much in the same way how when you're talking about in the classroom, that there's times that whoever it is speaking is the one who is learning. There are times in my sessions where it is not clear who the therapist is because the client is the one who is bringing the awesome thing. The client is the one who is speaking knowledge. And sometimes I have to sit back and listen and be like, yo, how is it that this person's healing themselves and speaking Mm. this knowledge and they have this quote unquote depression? How is it that, that they are speaking this knowledge and they have this quote unquote anxiety disorder? So Mm. I feel that when a person is able to heal from their suffering, uh, when we give them the proper context and the proper environment, then miracles end up being the status quo. And if miracles are the status quo, what does that say about uh, reality? And to go back to what uh, we were saying once again, is that um, I do believe that many of the issues that we believe as being treatment resistant sometimes is a lack of creativity, not on the part of the client, but on the part of the society that makes us believe that this is all that we are, that is expected of us. Right, right. Yes, yes, yes. This, this landed, this landed. Um, because oftentimes the, the burden is placed on the person that is suffering. Yes. Right? The burden is often placed on the person that's suffering and then it becomes insurmountable because they're like, I, if, if yes, yes, there's a part that is on us, but we have to realize where the, where the issue comes from in the first place, right? Yes. Um, so, so the question that I have now in relation to Black Mountain Fight for the Future, how does the how do the characters embodied that like growth that that ability to liberation to 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 strive for liberation that um that consciousness of like of that we are able to to do that how do they embody yes, embody good that question. so i think that the the simplest way I can say it is because uh, I want to go back to, to to your question and then after answer this one if I can yeah. because since our time of is course. cyclical go, then it go is ahead. then it is okay for me to jump. <laughs> um, this is the simple because re- you would ask before about why is this science fiction and mm. um, just know that this is n- there are no no humans in the book is the mm. is the the main thing and I felt. This book takes place after Earth is destroyed. So that's kind of the reason why these are things that cannot possibly happen. And I think as a therapist, it's fun for me to speak to you about this because I'm sharing my delusion with you. I'm sharing my delusion with the world of like, (laughs) this is something that didn't exist, but we're going to spend time talking about this thing that can't possibly exist. Um, When the fighters do uh, achieve and practice their abilities, they're then able to shoot like um, different elemental forces from their hands. They're able to fly. They're able to travel at speeds. They're able to do what's called air stepping, meaning that they can press against the uh, the gravitational pull of the planet so they can step on air and fly. Mm. And I wanted to make something that was 
that seemed like it was so outside of this world, but actually so current. Because the issues that they're uh, confronted with are cyclical. Because all of the humans have been destroyed in this book, uh, their souls are still are still around. And some of the humans who didn't heal from the traumatic responses that they had, they still reincarnated into this present future time. And that means that we still are dealing with racism. We still are dealing with classism. We still are dealing with uh, climate change. We're still dealing with uh, monopolies. We're still dealing with uh, uh, people who are power hungry. These problems threaten the existence of the inhabitants of the planet of Zephea. And the the previous planet, I don't want to give away too much, but because of course, okay, just a little segue is that it's funny for me to 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 say I don't want to give away too much because there's spoilers now. So I'm coming right. at this from the perspective of a nonfiction writer, where if I right. start the book saying there's racism, at the end of the book, there still is racism. You know what I mean? So <laughs> now I have to be like, oh, shoot, don't say this part because they might know. Okay, so anyways. So what happens is the way how they're able to develop their skills, and again, there are no humans. These are not mm. these are not humans. It's not Earth or any of that. They are, it's a race of people or species of people called Zlan. And when they go through certain ancestral ceremonies, they're then able to develop the six powers that I mentioned before. So super strength, uh, acceleration, so super speed, psychokinesis, so tele- telepathy and te- telekinesis, air stepping, mm-hmm. which I described. And um, there's also soul force, mental force, and the ability to change or challenge reality. And these are actually all things, as I explain in the book, that if we are able to access our energy fields and our and do our meditations and do our practices and stuff, that all people who have like energy fields are able to do this to some degree. But it's right. through their diligence, it's through their reading, it's through their learning, it's through their mentorship, it's through the support that they have in the team members that they're able to focus and uh, become the ones that are able to ultimately save the world. Mm. Mm. So it's like I, I sense multiple plane of existence, which goes back to the to the cycle because it's like you yes. know it's it's not it's not a clear cut end. There's there's level, and then and then the existence that maybe we have here transferring to another plane, and then so on and so forth. And then 100. as we move through the planes, we are acquire acquiring acquiring kind of like powers and and knowledge mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and tools. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because if we are, for, for people that sometimes have a, a difficulty to grasp those ideas of plane of existence, I think in our daily lives, by interacting with people, with our family, we are able to acquire those knowledges. We are able sure. by knowing our history, by knowing by knowing who made us the way we are, by knowing, you know, um, by doing what Kendrick Lamar talks about, like, you know, having royalty and loyalty inside our DNA, right? Like mm, knowing mm-hmm. where knowing where we're from can can give us that knowledge and then we can push that boundary mm-hmm. boundary further. Um it's it's um it reminds me of uh you from Jamaica, you have Jamaica, Jamaican ancestry, and there is a, a Jamaican thinker, Marcus Garvey, 
yes. who who inspired uh, the song Redemption Song um, by mm-hmm. Bob Marley that says, um, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. And, and that, that, that dedication to, to work on ourselves um, reminds me, like what you describe here reminds me of that quote to emancipate ourselves from yeah. mental slavery, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's mind blowing, man. Like how we embed, how, how now, how, how does that impact you as an author? Cause you, 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 you tap into bridging the gap between your, your passion and your profession. Yeah. So, so how does that, how, how is it to embrace those two things, your passion and your profession? How is that as an author? Hmm. Well, um, I, I, I need to mention, you said Marcus Garvey, so I have to say, um, yeah. if we're talking about the cyclical connections that are there, is that without Marcus Garvey, you wouldn't have uh, Malcolm X, mm-hmm. because his father was part of uh, the, I believe, a, a, a Marcus Garvey organization. Mm. And I think without Malcolm X, to some degree, you wouldn't have had the Black Panthers. Right. And of course... I don't want to just focus on just single people. Sometimes we will think only of Martin Luther King and, and not think of uh, the student nonviolent, student nonviolent, nonviolent coordinating committee, SNCC. Right. And there are always like multiple people that are behind the singular person that we will see that's represented in the media. But I'm saying this because to some degree, without these people, I think David Archer wouldn't exist as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean about um, that there's cycles that exist. Uh, so I feel that the reason why I'm doing this type of work is to make it so the next David Archer exists as well. Whether that is going to be more black male therapists in Canada because we don't have enough, whether that is going to be more anti-racist therapists and anti-racist educators of all races and all backgrounds because we don't have enough of them. Mm. When we say, what is the connection between my profession and my passion is that I'm trying to do everything that I can do in my waking moments to eliminate the suffering that exists in the world. I think that having that type of motivation means that I'm going to think differently about therapy. And it also means that the clients that I have will be in a different context so they can come up with solutions that will exceed even their own expectations. So I say this because I can't separate the the profession from mm. the task at hand. Um, I want to say another thing about the book, which I think is very important, is the introductory quote. Uh, the introductory quote is by Frantz Fanon. And mm. as I think you, you may be familiar, so the introductory quote is, each generation must discover its mission, fulfill it or betray it in relative opacity. And I think that quote itself is to say that we all in our generation, we have a purpose. We have things that we have to uh, achieve. In our existence, there's also a purpose. There are things that we need to actually do. And when we get sidetracked by the social construction of racism or the social construction of patriarchy, heterosexism, etc., to some degree, when we believe the lie that the oppressors have given us about who we are, I feel to some degree 
we fulfill what they wanted to to uh, they fulfill what their wish was, which was to betray our general mission. Mm-hmm. For me, I believe that my mission is to leave this world better than how I found it. So these types of ideas, I feel are important not just for a therapist, not just for a psychologist, a counselor. I think that it is imperative for educators as well to know about these ideas. It's imperative even for like, I mean, lawyers and doctors and police officers, whatever profession. And if we start with that type of purpose of not trying to equate my value to my profession, but trying to focus on who I am in the context of a mission that needs to be achieved, then I think we are able to do great things that exceed even our own expectations as well. Wow. Wow. Brother, you you brought me to a place here of like our, our core sometimes vibrate when we are feeling called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's what I feel here. I feel called. And and those those canon names that you mentioned, the the Marcus Garvey's the the Malcolm yes. X's, the, yes. the the Black Panther movement, the James Baldwin, the the Franz Fanon of the world. Those are icon that were calling on us, you and I, right now in this plane of existence, to continue the the fight, to continue the mission, not only for Black people, mainly for Black people, but not only for Black people, but also for for everyone. There is um. Aimé Césaire, um, yes, yeah. f- great, great French author, well, Caribbean author, mm-hmm. who said that we, he, 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 he was the creator of the movement Negritude, which is a, a yes. literary movement um, to, to, to embrace our condition as, as black people. It's a black movement. And he said to fight for black people is to understand the universality of the fight for freedom. And once we embrace that, <laughs> once we embrace that, then, then, then we understand that we are fighting for the universe, for, for universal mm-hmm. rights, which is, which is, which is something that, you know, it's kind of like those, those, uh, it's like, those slogans or those um, those mantras that myself, I repeat myself every time I step into a classroom, every time I'm teaching about a historical yes. event, every time that I, I had a student of mine, you know, I, I probably said that on the podcast last season, but I had a student of mine during the month of February who told me, Mr. Exume, um, we haven't done anything on Black History Month. And we were like February 27th or 26th, so end of the month. And it's like, we haven't done anything for Black History Month. And it seems like the whole classroom knew the blunter that he said, because the whole classroom was like, you don't want to get him started on the fact that we haven't started Black History Month. And my first thing was like, dude, it's been Black History Month from the moment you stepped in this classroom. (laughs) Because when was the last time that you had a Black teacher? Mm-hmm. I'm your first black teacher and I could likely be the only black teacher that you have for a very long time. Unfortunately, yeah. That is black history right there. I don't need to teach about a bunch of other things. Just me presenting myself, my body in there. It's already an act of, of, of it's a revolutionary act, <laughs> right? Because, because uh, uh, sir, at, at one point I did not belong in that space, mm-hmm. right? 
So, so, um, but we, we have, we are, we have a certain responsibility and sometimes I feel like that, that responsibility can feel crippling for some people. But what I like in your liberating message is that it doesn't have to be at the same stage for everybody at our level, at our level of influence, we can, we can, you know, bring that responsibility to, to leave this world in a better condition than where we find it. There we go. That could be it, right? That's what's up. Um, That's, that's, man, you know, I feel that I should have a monthly meeting with you. (laughs) That's funny. I should have, you know, like behind, (laughs) behind the scene and just, you know, let's not let, let's not give that to the, to the audience. But I, I feel that I should have a, I, I love having those type of conversations. This is this is where I, because they are not trivial, right? They are very real, right? 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 They are ver- they are very 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 real, and yeah. and it's 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 on us to have those conversations more and more and more, so they can you know permeate in everything that we do. I agree. I agree. I, I want to say too is that it's a pleasure having these types of conversations with you. And I think that your, as you said, your existence, your presence in the classroom is a gift to those students. Some of them may realize it at this time. Some of them may realize it uh, down the line. But that's right. What happens if we we create more of those types of situations where the presence of the individual is is also transformative? And is it possible to create that type of experience that people's presence, not even what they're saying? But just their being also becomes transformative. And that's what my uh, therapy and that's what the theory behind my work endeavors to find out. And I've seen that when people heal from, because you've clearly done your work, um, when people do their work and when they heal from their suffering, they show up differently and people around them change also. Mm -hmm. So I really think that to some degree, um, uh, well, one thing is that it's possible for us to continue this conversation forever because there's so much uh, to say and to unpack about it. But ultimately, I do want to say uh, uh, thank you for being you and thank you for mm-hmm. for even the people in your audience as well for continuing to support this uh, podcast and to listen to it because the speaker only exists when the listener is there. Ooh, I'm... I'm, I'm I had to I had to take a beat to let that sink in. The speaker only exists when the listener is there. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I have I have a question in your answer about liberation. You mentioned the word purpose. Yes. And and nowadays, maybe in the spheres that I interact, nowadays the word purpose can be um it's very used and it can be daunting. Mm-hmm. And and myself, I'm 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 confronted with that as well. Into I'm like, what is my purpose and how do you move on purpose, etc. From your perspective, what is is there a difference between fear of purpose and lack of purpose? What would you what What do you think? 
It's interesting. The fear of purpose and lack of purpose. Explain. I feel that we, from interacting with my students, with my kids, older kids, younger kids, I feel that sometimes we we mislabel lack of purpose with fear of purpose of like, oh, I don't have any purpose when it's like it, it, to get in a place where you don't have any purpose. It's very, very, it's a, it's a very, very dark place. And oftentimes I, ref, I refuse to believe that I know there's some people that are deeply, deeply suffering, but the people that I interact with, sometimes I'm see, I'm like, no, you don't have lack of purpose. The purpose is there, but you're f- afraid of going there. Oh, that's interesting. So, so yeah. um, well, yeah, I, it's, it's a reflection that I've been having. So I wanted to, to share your perspective on that. Right. Well, this is a key part of the book also is that um, the book to some degree, even though they're shooting fire and exploding, destroying mm-hmm. machines and AI technologies attacking a, a part of it is also about a coming of age story. These are 16 year olds and um, well, the two uh, main uh, protagonists and the interesting thing is that I wrote this reflecting on some talks that I heard from Dr. Greg Carr and Professor Karen Hunter, who they have these regular talks on a weekly basis. You could Google them on YouTube and you'll hear them. Mm. And they talk about having an Africana uh, perspective on things. So more than orienting ourselves or seeing ourselves as minorities, we think about the fact that melanated people are the global majority in the world. There's less white people in the world than everyone else. But mm-hmm. when you're in this context of this country, you're going to think otherwise because we keep calling ourselves minorities. And the interesting thing too is that I think to some degree, listening to their stories and listening to uh, the the knowledge that uh, Dr. Carr has, it's led me also to think about even the term black is that when, because black is not what our ancestors called themselves before white people created themselves. Like mm. blackness started when whiteness started to exist. But I think it's important. I use black as more of a, a political identity because there are some people with black skin and white masks. Okay. Another France Fanon drop. Okay. But it's, it's really just to say that um, you can be black and you can still be, a, you can still practice white supremacy. So it's for people to understand that you can be, I have some, some badass clients that are activists and they're white people and they fight for the well-being of black people, indigenous people, et cetera, et cetera. So I say all of this to explain that to some degree, what you're seeing with the young people you come across with is similar to what I see with the young clients that I have. It's not, I don't believe it's a lack of purpose because there's things that we do purposefully. Like I put on the shirt, I had to put it on. It's impossible for me to put on my socks without a purpose. Like you need to motivate yourself to do these mm. types of things. <laughs> I, I also think that most people, some people believe that they are lazy. Some young people will believe this. Some adults do. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are always motivated. There's always a motivation there. It's just the motivation to some degree can be um, your motivation or someone else's motivation. But if a person's motivated to chill on a couch for eight hours, that's still motivation. Right. Um, I, I cycle back to an explanation I give about 
uh, addictions, because I've also worked with people who suffer from substance abuse and addictions. And usually the person with the addicted behavior, they will say that they have no qualities. And I'll say, no, that's not true. Since you identify as an addict, it means you're persistent. Mm. (laughs) It's true. It means you can stick to something. You can Mm. create habits. So we just need Mm. to find out ways of you being able to make a habit for sobriety and you being able to make a habit for loving yourself. Mm. The people will tell me that they don't have a purpose in part due to the fear but it's especially because they're living out someone else's purpose. Um, I noticed that in the black community, what we lost through a lot of the centuries of violence that was done to us was we lost our initiation rights, our, our pass, our initiation rites of passage. So how does a black boy become a man? And because we are not consciously doing this in our communities all the time, some communities are doing it, but because we don't, who do we leave it up to? Well, the social structure. The social structure would then say that once you're at a certain age, you can listen to rap music with the swear words. Mm. And then when you're listening to that type of music, (laughs) that music is kind of telling you what a black man should be doing. Mm. So to some degree, the social structure is what determines our purpose. And if we don't determine what our purpose is, then people who don't have our best interests in mind oftentimes will fill that void. So this book is about what happens if for two people, two youth who have seen that their purpose is in a way being, um, that they're being pushed into a direction that they don't want their life to be. What happens if from a set of circumstances relating to an oracle and the fate and the destiny of them and all this, what happens if there are some well, some, um, some elders that want to make it so that they have a better chance at their life if they are able to intervene at a specific moment in time? And that's what allows the story to, to take place. So in them being able to recognize their strength and their potential to change the world is them being able to recognize that there is a uh, empowering belief they can hold for themselves, which then determines their purpose and makes them uh, defeat the enemy. Wow. Wow. That's, um, man, it's, it's leaves me speechless because, because I, it's, it's not speechless in the sense of there's no word. It's speechless in the sense of like the words will not make it justice to the beauty mm-hmm. of, of how you constructed that and, and how you are embedding that into your practice and how you are, you know, promoting that through, through interacting with, with your clients, how you're promoting that through your books. And, and I feel like what you're doing as well is a initiation process, right? For the audience, for the people reading the book, for your clients to go back into that. Um, one thing that I sometimes talk to my students is having rituals, even for themselves, yeah. right? And and we, you know, it's a word that sometimes, I don't know, we live in a society that, you know, look bad on routine and, and repetition and you know we always need excitement and stuff like that but but we do have a cadence 
we do have a routine, a ritual that we do for ourselves, whatever it is, like whether it's waking up in the morning, whether it's the way that we cook eggs, it doesn't matter. We have a path, we have a a flow. And, And I feel that reconnecting to what you're inviting us to do is reconnecting to rituals, reconnecting to on listening, you know, there's an oracle, right? That the oracle is the transmitter of of our destiny, but we're not boxed by it. We have to step to it, right? Um, that's what I feel about destiny. So, so that's that's how I register what you what you mentioned in there. Thank it's you, beautiful man. It's it's amazing. Um, as we are, um, as we touch on different parts of of your book and. And the coming of age and um, anti-racist psychotherapy and the purpose of history. How do you how do you think your your son would um, interact? I'm fast forwarding you there like 12 years, 13 years from today. Your son will probably be 14, 15. How do you think that he will like you know interact or embrace or 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 devour that book like just little hypothetical here well it's um okay so even though i've written about the future mm-hmm. i do not know what the future will hold for him so i'm i, I know i'm giving like such a rational and like <laughs> logical and linear uh, answer but it's that um because sometimes people have asked me how do you do you want him to be a therapist when he when he grows up or what profession do you think he'll have and i think that the most that i would want for my son to be is happy i think that's the greatest gift that i can give to the next generation how do you make it so that the next generation loves themselves how do you make it so that the next generation believes that their life is worthwhile uh you know there's two like uh in the past year in the United States, there's been an increase in the amount of uh, youth suicide, specifically for black youth. And mm-hmm. that's new. Even in uh, anti-racist psychotherapy, when I wrote it in 2020, it still was that white people were committing suicide more often than black people. But that's starting to change. We are also seeing that there's more opioid abuse among black people as well. And again, I mean, it could be related to the fact that a lot of rappers are drinking syrup and drinking all types of different mm. <laughs> Percocet and, and all like, <laughs> I mean, come on guys. Like, so, um, the most that I'd want for my son, I mean, like, uh, part of the reason why I wrote a science fiction novel, I think was me connecting to the youthful aspect of myself and knowing mm. that my son may not, it may be a bit of time before he's thinking of academic literature and like, uh, studies of psychotherapy and memory reconsolidation and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and all these other brain <laughs> things. But um, what motivated me, I think, as well to, to write this was fun. It was mm. like, what, what do I want my purpose to be writing this type of book? And I wanted it to be full enjoyment and to make a, a story that's going to be exhilarating and also informative and also for people who believe that they're not interested in therapy, that they could still have a, a fun time reading uh, this type of book as well. Right. right. Uh, so to answer, yeah, it's really just to answer that is that in the future, what I predict for or what I'd want most for my son is just for him to 
uh, to love the skin he's in. Mm. Mm. To love the skin you're in. That's a great wish. That's a great wish. That's a great dream Dream to, to love the skin you're in. And, mm-hmm. and, and we leave it at that. It's, it's so freeing. That's a liberating message as well, right? I'm, 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 it's a letting go of the control and, 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 trust, and, trusting, and trusting that. Wow. Man, it's uh, the gems and the, the <laughs> level of... <laughs> it's like the level of like, you know connection that i feel when i have a conversation with you thank you it's it's i'm grateful i'm grateful to have my path crossing your path i'm i'm grateful for the beautiful things you do i'm grateful for your time i'm grateful to know as well that there are people that are in contact with with people like you that wants them to be you know to love the skin they are in and 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 that's that right um, Franz Fanon is 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 a is a hero of mine. T- too bad he he died so young. Didn't know that he died yes. at like thirty six, thirty seven years old max. I don't even know you if he cracked forty. Um, but but he's, he's a he guy that's crazy. really asking us to to love ourselves, right? And, and that's yeah. a difficult thing, though. That's a difficult thing to love to love ourselves. But well, they don't mention him by name, but. Um, but uh, Zadar Khan, who's the main uh, uh, mentor, he asks Firearm, who's one of the like protagonists, he's like, "Why did you choose this book?" And then Firearm's holding the book called "Wretched of the Earth." Mm. So, it, it, I want to feel. I want to. I really appreciate the conversations that we're having, and I want to. I want to have another talk with you. So let's set up another time when you're when you're ready, and we'll. And of course, we'll continue the conversation because this. What? I, I tried as much as I could to write a book that would be different from anything that I've read mm. and also just something that would be able to activate that creativity that all people have access to. So from a therapist to an educator, I, I would like, I would really like to hear your reflections on and, uh, and for us to speak a lot about, uh, well, about this and other things, of course, I don't want to take up you, all your time. I know you're busy. You're a teacher. So you're super busy. No. Brother, brother, it's like, I think one of the bad traits of being a teacher, at least well, I'm not going to say a teacher. One of my bad traits is that, is that I have a hard time saying no. And I'm saying, <laughs> whole, I'm saying, I'm saying wholeheartedly yes to you right now, because that's what I believe deep inside. But Thank you. what I'm saying is like, is like, I refuse to believe that I don't have time. So okay. that's kind of like, that's kind of like, I refuse to believe that I won't be able to do it. Like I'm okay, on another perfect. sphere. I'm another sphere of time. I'm like, no, I'll have time to do it until the last part when I realize, shit, I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a firm believer that I will, that I will have time. So I have a hard time. I, I sure. even have a, a, a motto for the month of September, um, a question that's directing my month of September. I love doing that. Having one question that is like my, my North, my North star for September, yeah. which is, which is the question is, and maybe the audience can, can I don't know, benefit from that. 
the question is, what can I say no so I can say yes to what matters? Mm. Um, so, so it's very, um, it's very intentional. It's hard. It is the hardest question for me ever because I'm a people pleaser. I, I love to make people happy. And the way that I make people happy is by being there for them. So right. me saying no, it's hard, but at the same time, I feel like it, uh, it helps me reconnect with myself, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, so wholeheartedly, yes. And, and we are offering, you know, um, I, I, I love, you're the second author or third author that I have on this podcast, and we're trying to have more authors. And I would like to offer a book to our audience, right? Yeah. Um, right. So pe- people listening to this conversation, tag us on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Black Mountain Fat for the Future, Teach Reach Podcast. Tag us online, tag us on your peep, on your social media, share this podcast, and then We'll, we'll see that and then we will give you more details in the, in the intro of this, uh, of this uh, podcast and then we'll get, you, we'll get you a book so you can read to the beautiful things that, that David gets to do and the, the beautiful, the new baby of the, in the yes. lineage, in the lineage yes. of, uh, of, the, of the Archer, the Archer line, the Archer <laughs> family. <you know>? Yes. <laughs> the, 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 the banyan tree is growing and expanding. You know? That's it, man. That's it. <laughs> That's it so, man. brother, you, you've done a lot of teaching. Um, Thank you. And I'm, I'm, I'm switching a little bit the format of the teach reach here. But you've done a lot of teaching. Where can people reach you? Where can people reach out to you? Where can people, you know, find you and follow you and, and get to see the beautiful yeah. things that you do? Sure. So uh, I want to thank your listeners. I want to thank you for giving me the space to, to talk about these ideas. And if you're interested in learning more, you can go to archertherapy.com. And if you'd like to get any of these books, you can get them at Amazon. And so, again, the name of the book is Anti-Racist Psychotherapy. That's the first one. Black meditation is the second. Racial trauma recovery is the third. And Black Mountain, Fight for the Future, is the fourth book. And uh, these books can also be available at Black bookstores. Uh, The Black bookstore that I do recommend is Librairie Racine, if you're in Quebec. Uh, There's also a different book list that has them. Um, And if you're in the Ontario area... And go on my website and you'll see the other black bookstores that you can also support as well. We need to keep keep our black bookstores open. We need to support them. Um, but, you know, if you want to support millionaires who fly rocket ships to the <laughs> outer, then you can do it on Amazon. But I also endorse you supporting like local libraries. And you can go to the bookstores and you can ask for these books and they can also get them as well. So, um, but, so if you can't get it directly from a bookstore that we should love and cherish, then you can also get them online in these ways. So archertherapy.com, add yourself to the mailing list to be aware of the next time that uh, I write another, I don't know, I don't know what I'll write next time. Science fiction, uh, anti-racist relational therapy, who knows? But um, (laughs) uh, yeah, so there's there's always something that's cooking. Right now I'm thinking about courses, Mm. thinking about how to to make it so that people who can't meet with me, that they'll be able to get a course of the techniques so that 
you will still be able to practice along, even though we're not in, in, uh, in real time that it can right. be on demand because as we said, time is cyclical. So you could still spend time with each other, but you'll do it with digital David, not a uh, actual David Archer. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you very much, David, for this enlightening conversation. Thank you. And for your for your grace and your and your knowledge. We truly appreciate that. And uh for the listeners, we're asking you to Kembela Palage, hang in there. Don't give up. Thank you for listening to the Teach Reach podcast. This podcast is produced by Dr. Lemstein Productions, mixing and editing by Ian Lamb. If you are enjoying this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe rate or give us a review on apple spotify google or wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on instagram at teachreach underscore podcast and tag us on your social media post and share with your friends with the hashtag teachreach podcast for our regular listeners we truly appreciate your support thank you you can find more about our podcast at teachreach.podbean.com until next time kembe lapalage hang in there don't give up. My name is Kim Dominique Ferguson, and you are listening to the Teach Reach podcast with Donkey. Join us next time at the same reach time, same teach place.